Welcome to On the Edge with Eddie, detangling our Black identities. I am your host, Eddie Etsy. I am excited for you to be joining our journey to explore all the different shades of Black identities, have real conversations and discussions. Hey, you know what? I tell you guys all the time, our conversation stories and discussions are not meant to degrade, discourage, or prove a point. Exploring Black identities is all about empowering. It's about learning. It's about giving people a voice to tell their stories and creating spaces for those who don't have a voice um, and sometimes just be you know, a voice for other people as well. Hashtag, I say this all the time, not all Black people are the same. So today I'm super excited. Um, you know, Super Bowl being over just yesterday, I got a real um, baller on the line with me today. Torin Young, former Iowa football player, um, went to uh, Monona, actually a native of Monona. Um, it rushed for 5,000 yards, 54 touchdowns in three seasons at Silver Eagles, Monona Grove High School, committed to Iowa. I mean, and he showed up at Iowa, great leader, um, two of the Russia freshmen to be named to the 2017 leadership group, only sophomore named to the 2018 leadership group, only junior named to the 2019 leadership group, academic all big 10 for the second year in a row in 2018, Team Hustle Award, Torin Young, my man, welcome to On the Edge with Eddie. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Good, good, good. Well, you know what? Hey, let's start this off. Yesterday was the Super Bowl, right? Um, you had some uh, some teammate, uh, Wars, was on there. Listen, how did you feel about the Super Bowl? Let's be honest. How do you feel about it? How do you feel about Tom Brady winning, what, the 10th Super Bowl, man? I mean, where's everybody else at? <laughs> nah, yeah. You know, it, there's actually a couple Iowa guys who was out there. Uh, Anthony Nelson, who uh, – yep. Yeah. Was on tip and then uh, there was uh, Ben Neiman and then Anthony Hitchens as well. Yep, so, Hitchens, yeah. You know, it was cool to see all those former Hawkeyes out there. Um, I, I definitely was rooting for uh, Tampa Bay. Oh, okay. Uh, but, you know, it, it was a good game. I like I like Tampa Bay's defense, so that's why I was kind of pulling for them. Pulling for but, them, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, it was definitely cool to see. It was a good, well, it was a good uh, game by Tampa Bay. Chiefs struggled a little bit, but. Yeah, they did. They did. And I mean, it was crazy because what Tampa Bay had a home advantage, right? I mean, I mean, they were playing at home in their stadium for the Super Bowl. So again, you know, if they would have lost, it would have been a bigger story <laughs> than them winning, right? Definitely. <laughs> you know? Definitely. Yep. And not to take anything away from the Chiefs, but hey, you know, you know, they 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 did their thing, you know. But again, you know, Tom Brady and the uh uh the Bucks came up on top. Congratulations to them. Much love. So let's talk a little bit about your story, though, because, I mean, beast mode in high school. Um, tell me a little bit about, first of all, Monona. What's that like growing up in, you know, in that space, in, in that town um, and playing football um, as a black man in that town? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, just to kind of before we go into Monona, um, 
I so I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, lived there, and I actually ended up transferring to Monona Grove High School. Um, so it was a big cultural shock. So Madison, yeah. you know, the Madison School District has a lot of diversity. You know, I grew up from kindergarten all the way on to eighth grade, being you know with people of all different races, religions, et cetera, right. et cetera. And then going to Monona Grove is predominantly white. Yeah. Um, it's you know, like population like eight thousand or something like that. Yeah. So yeah, Monona's the town's population is probably around like eight thousand. The school had like nine hundred kids. Oh wow! And of that, I think I want to say there was like 20, 20 to thirty black kids total. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it was a culture shock. Yeah. Um, and you know, for me growing up, you know, switching from that diversity to being, you know, one of a handful of black kids, I had to learn how to navigate that real fast. Um, you know, f- having football and sports kind of guided me and was able to kind of help me to keep my head on straight. But I faced a lot of adversity, learned a lot of lessons um, mm. from my time, you know, uh, at Monona Grove. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about, you know, some of the challenges you face at Monona. Again, it's a very small town. Like you're one out of 20 um, kids out of like 900 900 kids in the school. Um, What was it like being in high school, being a football player in a predominantly white space? Um, You know, again, you know, when I was in high school, you know, the black kids that were football players, they were like, you know, the it, right? I mean, they were walking down the halls and they were like, yeah, they're like the superheroes or whatnot, right? What was it like for you and Monona being a football player and being a black man at the same time? Definitely. You know, um, with that football, like you like you said, you know, they walk in the hall and you're the it. Yeah. When it came to sports and football, it, it was almost like that. You know, you got, you know, you're – talented black man at a predominantly white school like yeah football great cool this that the other but then on the other hand um my interactions as a just a young man or as a teenager at the time um were a little different and you know I like to I like to think of the majority of my experiences while I was at high high school at Monona Grove as microaggressions Mm. uh, interactions so you know I wouldn't say you know, everybody I went to school with was blatantly racist. Right. But, you know, there was, I don't think they understood how to interact with, uh, you know, with black people. Right. So, I mean, I, I faced, for example, like people, I've had students make comments like, you know, yeah, why do black girls wear weave, that weave in their head or do, when they put grease in their hair, is right. it chicken grease? Like, is it food? Like just, you know, little silly comments like right. that. Right. Yep. Um, and then just, I noticed one of the biggest thing was how I carried myself. Um, I carried myself a lot different as a freshman in high school than I did as a senior in high school. Um, I know you you mentioned the term code switching before we got on here. Yeah. Uh, you know that that that's real, especially when you're trying to navigate a space and you're going to school and and trying to be involved in in that every day of the week. So I mean, when I first went to Monona Grove, I wasn't as accepted as a student and as a person, but my football skills kind of um, what the word I would want to use just kind of over overpowered 
um, you know, my personality or who I was outside of that right. at the time. So being a football player is one thing, or being a black football player is one thing in high school when you're in the school and you're in the facilities that people know who you are as a football player, right? So there's Torin Young, the football player that is accepted because he's gifted, he's great, he's good at running, scoring touchdowns, and the school needs to succeed because of your skills, right? And then there's a Torin Young, the, the black man outside of a school, which is, you know, a non-football player that people might not necessarily know. Right? Again, you know, for you, Monona was a small town that, you know, maybe a lot of people knew you because, you know, they saw highlights and stuff on TV. Um, but can you tell me a little bit about, you know, you were talking about navigating, you know, uh, the Monona world. Was there a big difference between when you were at school where people knew you because you were a football player and when you were outside of school premises where people might not necessarily know you and how you were treated outside of, you know, school, school grounds? For sure. So, I mean, I mean, just even interaction with other students in football, it was, you know, yeah, you're, you're the guy, we'll talk to you, cool, we'll hang around you. But then it was, you know, outside of school of, they're going to, if, you know, guys are going to hang out and do this, you know, you might not, you don't always get invited to certain things, which is fine, whatever. And, you know, there was a good amount of guys, who, white guys that I went to school with who did want to hang out outside of school, but there was a big chunk who really didn't right. care to inter interact like that or times where me and my friends, uh, some of the other black uh, students I went to school with where we would go, um, on like a half day of school or whatever, we would go out into, you know, the Monona and Cottage Grove communities and hang out at people's houses. And there was an incident where we actually had the cops called on us for being at, you know, one of our uh, friend's houses. Their parents knew we were there. We were all hanging out and, you know, someone called the cops because they saw two black kids yep. in a nice, you know, yeah. uh, wealthy neighborhood and you know call the cops because they didn't think we should be there yep or well, you don't deserve to be there or you yeah, know you're yeah. not you don't have the looks to be there right because your skin is a little bit darker um so you don't belong in that neighborhood um you know what it, it's crazy because i had the same thing happen to me too and sometimes it's almost comic uh, but you know after all of the you know the recent shootings and the things happening you know you reflect on that and you're like you know, it's real because that individual who called the cops because they see a black person in the neighborhood and they internalize the fact that that black individual does not belong there. It's the exact same thoughts that goes into, oh, that person does not belong there. So maybe let me just eliminate them because I have a gun and maybe I can just shoot them because they don't belong in the neighborhood. Right. I mean, it's crazy to think that just because of your skin color, somebody can say that you don't belong in a space and they will want to eliminate you or remove you from this world because you don't belong in that space. Mostly because they don't either one, feel safe, right? Or two, they feel insecure, right? I mean, it's not like high school, you're doing you know, crazy thing. You know, I mean, for me, when I, the, they call the cops on me and saying that I was in this neighborhood, 
I was visiting a friend. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like yeah. I was visiting a really good friend, you know, and it's crazy to think that. Um, so let's talk a little bit about then you decided to come to Iowa, right? Um, first of all, what went into coming to Iowa? Because again, you know, Iowa is, you know, it's, it's a white space, right? There isn't a lot of black folks in Iowa. Um, even, again, Iowa football programs have some good number of black folks, but you decided to come to Iowa. Why did you decide to come to Iowa? What went into that decision? Um, and, you know, why, why, why Iowa? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, at the time, uh, Iowa was one of the first schools to like heavily recruit me, took visits there, and that really preached a family atmosphere um, and talked about development. And, you know, coming from Madison, Wisconsin, which is like a small market for collegiate athletes, mm-hmm. you know, I, I always had that chip on, chip on my shoulder. I knew I was an underdog in ways yep. in that development and a family atmosphere would be the best fit for me, as well as just the style of football that Iowa played. So um, that really played the biggest part um, in me coming to Iowa. I know before I was recruited to Iowa, it wasn't a place where I, you know, was very familiar with, didn't know, you know, much about it. But, you know, the the football atmosphere and, and just kind of their their mantra and and kind of what they pride themselves on is what drew me to the program. What was the biggest culture shock for you when you came to Iowa um, as a football player? Definitely. Um, You know, it's interesting that you asked that because my high school experiences kind of almost prepped me in ways uh, for my experiences at Iowa. But the, the difference was in high school, you know, football isn't like a job. It's something, you know, you go to practice after school, 3.30, whatever, Monday through Friday, and then games on Friday, and then that's that. Whereas when you get to college, football's 24-7, you know, you're, you're lifting, you're meeting, you're, you're practicing, you're watching film, um, you know, and then – classes are tied into all that so um the biggest like culture shock for me was just kind of that atmosphere and kind of um the higher expectations uh, that that you would have from high school uh versus college um so that was a big difference for me and with you know most colleges big 10 schools being predominantly white institutions um the way I was raised and the way a lot of, uh, you know, black men and and minorities were raised is a lot different than um, how some of our white teammates were raised. And when you have majority of your coaches uh, being white men, you know, they came up different. So it's just a culture shock in that way, because in the sense, you know, your coaches are with you, 24 seven, you know, you see them every day, like you would see your parents at home. So they're kind of like that authoritative figure that, you know, you kind of look up to. And, and so it's just a culture shock in that aspect. How about um, on campus, right? So again, you know, and, and, you know, like you said, Monona prepared you for a space like Iowa, 
Um, but when you go to Iowa, it's, it's a bigger school, you know, like you said, you spend a lot of time with your football teammates and you spend a lot of time with the coaches and with a football program, but you still have to go to classes. You still have to, you know, be a student and you still have to do the regular student stuff. What was that transition like uh, for you coming to Iowa and going to, uh, going to classes and being on campus? Again, this is like a bigger stage, right? Um, and this is like national television. Everybody <laughs> know your name. What was that like being in on campus and going to classes um, as a black man navigating um, Iowa? Yeah, definitely. And, th- and that's a tough question because there's so many uh, smaller interdependent parts when it comes to that, because you look at being an a- athlete as one way of, you know, having different challenges and things that you have to navigate and then add being black on top of that. Yep. So it's a lot to think about and break down. But, um, you know, it overall, there was some pros and some cons, you know, right. again, like you mentioned in high school, being a black athlete, um, you know, you're the guy, you're, you're the it that you, that you uh, mentioned. And right. in college, you know, it's kind of the same thing. A lot of the kids on campus knew when you seen, you know, uh, a six, six, three black guy or a stronger looking black guy, they know, okay, he either plays football or basketball. And that's just kind of the reality of, you know, being on a predominantly white institution right. and just the reality of the world we live in um, when it comes to, kids going to college. And so, you know, it's cool. It was cool, but that also comes with um, challenges as well, because, you know, people have these preconceived notions about you almost like, yeah, you're, you're an athlete, you're, you're a black, um, you know, student. It's almost like they don't take you as seriously when it comes to the academic part. Because, oh, yeah, he's just here to play sports. And, you know, sometimes professors have that same outlook and that same uh, mindset when it comes to black student athletes. Mm-hmm. Uh, a big part of um, kind of helping us navigate that was Liz Tovar and the staff over at the uh, Learning Center right. and just kind of the support that they gave us and having um, a black woman um, just a strong black woman to kind of oversee that whole um, program and to really be a, a resource for us made it a lot easier because a lot of us did come in and, and kind of struggled to get a good start academically and kind of take in, you know, this new culture. <clears throat> so there, there, there's this, um, again, I, I'm, this is a concept and a preconceived notion that I've, you know, heard multiple people um, talked about, and I've talked to, you know, several athletes, um, you know, and, you know, there's this notion of, you know, yeah, you are, you are, you're a skilled football player, you're strong, you're fast, but when it comes to academics, you're not all that, right? You're, you're like, you know, the, the dumb black athletic um, individual, right? Or a guy, did you ever experience that at all? Um, when you were at Iowa, when you, when you came to school here that, you know, uh, some professors or, you know, people saw you and be like, you know what? Yeah. You're just here to play football. You don't really know much. Yeah. I mean, more so like, you know, I've heard other students make certain comments and, and things like that. Um, I didn't really necessarily hear it from professors. Sometimes, um, someone's body language and the way they carry themselves and interact with you can speak louder than their words. Yep. 
Um, although I don't want to make any assumptions, but me personally, I've always had that chip on my shoulder. Um, at Monona Grove, I wasn't the greatest student. As a senior, I was retaking freshman classes, so I was going to be eligible mm. to be able to accept my scholarship and go to Iowa. Right. And when I got to Iowa, you know, football was one thing, and it was huge. It was a big part of my life. But, you know, I wanted to make it a point to take this free education that I was getting, being the first, you know, person in my family to get this opportunity and just looking back at kids who I grew up playing football and other sports with, they didn't get this opportunity. Um, and, and they had to find other ways or, you know, they, they fell to the system and things like that. So I always wanted to take advantage of the opportunity I had and, and kind of had that chip on my shoulder just to, you know, to, that stereo to eliminate that stereotype. Yeah. So, so having that chip on your shoulder, did you feel like, you know, at times you have to work twice as hard um, just to prove yourself? Or did you feel like, you know, there's certain things that, you know, um, you know, as a black man, you have to, you, it's, it's up to you to prove yourself to make sure that, Hey, you know, I can do this, even though you're saying I can't do it. Um, did that chip on your shoulder really empower you to, you know, work twice as hard or is it just because, you know, you just have to work twice as hard as a black man to achieve what you've achieved? Definitely. And I'm noticing now that that's in everything we do in life, whether it's school, whether it's work, whatever you're involved in, um, that you got, you gotta, you have that feeling that you do have to work twice as hard. And, you know, I have this concept and it's that, that I talk about all the time about like this never ending cycle when it comes to, you know, black people in America right. and just looking at some of the adversity that I had to face growing up as a kid. Some of the things that set me back um, that made it where I have to work twice as hard. And, you know, people may not understand that or may not know that about me. So they look at it and they think. You know, they have people have this idea that America is just this place where it's equal opportunity for all. Milk and honey. Yeah, <laughs> yep. Exactly. It's and not milk and honey. <laughs> exactly. And when re in reality, it's not. And, you know, I just think back to simple things as far as my schooling being in elementary school. You know, I struggled with behavioral issues. Um, you know, I had stuff going on at home. I had, I, w I had like a, I wouldn't say a learning disability, but I had, you know, it was harder for me to learn and focus in school based off of what I was dealing with outside of school. Right. Um, and, you know, that made it tough. And so even in college, like I lacked certain skills that you would expect a, a college student to have, for example, grammar, like grammar stuff, like yep. common rules and, and things like that. I struggled with that. And, you know, it's all due to just me being a product of my environment and what I had to deal with and what kind of hurdles I had to face. And so I've had to work twice as hard, you know, when I'm writing a paper in college and I'm like, does a comma go here? Or, yep. you know, what, what is this uh, the right grammar? Right. You know, things like that. And, and I had to really kind of grasp it. Math thing, you know, studying, reading, doing all those things. I've, I've had to work twice as hard. 
and just to kind of make it a point to say I belong here, even in work, just working right now, um, you know, working in a sales job and coming in with, you know, kids who just graduated college as well. I kind of get the feeling like I have to prove myself and work hard because I don't want to be labeled as like, oh, that's the black guy. Right. You know, yeah. He doesn't know what he's doing or he, you know what I'm saying? Or I don't want people to say he's lazy or he's this, he's not professional. Like all the stereotypes that yeah. come with yep. so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, so <laughs> I completely get what you're saying because I mean, even now, um, grandma is a problem for me. Right. I mean, I, I don't like the whole punctuation thing. I, you know, English is, English is not my first language, you know, yeah. um, and I still struggle with that, you know, and I don't think um, a lot of people understand that, um, that sometimes it's a struggle um, the way our mind work or the way, you know, you, you grew, you grew up and your background, certain things are a struggle, right? So, you know, for you, it could be you're an art guy or you are, you know, really skilled in this space, but, you know, simple things like, you know, numbers or English might not come as easy for you. Right. And, you know, a lot of times people don't actually take a step back and appreciate the fact that we all have different skill sets, right? We mm-hmm. all have different, you know, you know, some people might have organizational skills, some people have leadership skills, and, you know, maybe they're really bad at math. <laughs> you know, I'm really, I'm terrible at English, right? Um, and, you know, there's a lot of times I don't even know, I don't even want to speak English. I just want to translate things in my head and just, you know, spit, spit them out in a different language. But, you know, you're absolutely right. You know, we are a byproduct of our um, of our society or of how we grew up. Um, and, and I think, you know, a lot of times people just need to pause and appreciate the fact that in a society, if everybody was one way, we will never get anywhere. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You know, you know, being a football player, you know, we need to have the linemen and, you know, to sort of block so you can get your holes to run through it, right? You For can't sure. block at the same time and run the ball and pass the ball to yourself, right? And, you know, and I think it's a shame that a lot of times, you know, people have the stereotypes um, of, the, you know, people, especially, you know, black men, and, you know, they don't really you know, pause to appreciate, oh, maybe you are very talented in this space, you know, and you might not be as much talented in this space, but it's okay, right? Um, Again, it's a shame. And hopefully, you know, um, you know, the world as we evolve, you know, things are getting better and people are getting smarter and, you know, taking the time to listen to different stories. And I'm hoping, you know, things will change, you know. Um, Let me take you back a little bit. um, And you're telling me about sort of how you grew up and what you had to go through. Do you mind sharing what it was like? Um, growing up, um, you know, in, in your family and, you know, sort of the family dynamics, um, what it was like for you growing up in Madison? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, and I kind of touched on Madison being a diverse place and it is to an extent. Right. Um, it is a, you know, when you get in this, the Madison school district, there's diversity, but Madison as a whole, um, you know, there at times, you know, it's been listed as one of the worst cities to to raise a black kid. Right. Um, and, you know, we're dealing with a lot of our stuff out here. Um, but just one coming from a single parent home, you know, uh, just that that's one tough thing right there. Yep. Um, and you look at, 
you know, my my uh, father, he was in prison and, you know, he was in prison all my life until maybe my sophomore, junior year of high school. Mm. Um, and, and I have a different dad than my brother and sister. So he was, you know, that I grew up and he was like a father figure to me. He even ended up going into, you know, the prison systems. And so I just look at it as, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you look at this cycle. Right. Look at mass incarceration, things like that. People spending uh, uh, awful a lot of time in in uh, prisons for nonviolent crimes and things like that. Um, taking taking fathers away from you know kids and families, and then you're leaving single mothers, mm-hmm. and then you know they're struggling to provide for their family. Then you know they you know they're not able to put food on the table every, you know, every day, or they may struggle to be able to sit down with their, their child and, and, you know, help them do their homework and things like that. And then you have young boys who are navigating this world on their own. And it's kind of like you have people in your neighborhood going through similar things. And it's like, you know, how do you get extra money? You got, you know, young kids, trying to sell drugs and fall with the wrong crowd and gang violence and, and things like that. So, I mean, I grew up in that type of neighborhood. I grew up with, you know, I know guys that I, that were my best friends that ended up going to prison. I know, you know, guys who were selling drugs, who were dropping out of school and doing different things. I know guys who aren't, you know, they're, they're not with us anymore. They passed away. And so I kind of had to navigate that single parent home and, and trying to figure that out, not having a father figure, being a young man, trying to, you know, learn on my own and being out in the neighborhood with other young men who, you know, who are a little bit older and, you know, they're trying to figure out the same thing. And you have all these negative influences and that that's kind of that cycle I talk about, you know, cause then these, these guys go on to have kids and then they're yeah. still doing the same things they're doing. Then, yeah. you know, you go to, they end up in jail, you could end up dead. So that's kind of what I had to navigate as a kid. And, you know, luckily for me, I had that outlet of football that kind of drove me through life and kind of kept me focused and kept me, you know, I kept my head squared away and, you know, I, I wanted to go to college and I wanted to, to uh, achieve great things and, and stay in school. So that, that helped me a lot. Yeah, that, that's, that's absolutely powerful. I mean, it, it, again, the, like the cycle that you talked about, it is truly a cycle, right? And because, again, you know, growing up in a space like that, single, um, you know, single mother of the kids, and, you know, you at a very young age, you know, having me put in a position to sometimes watch over your siblings or, you know, um, at a very young age, elementary school kid, um, trying to be a father figure to their, you know, younger siblings. And they don't even get the time for themselves or they don't get the space to actually grow. Right. And they're put in that space to start thinking, how do I provide for my younger sibling who is five or four? And they're like 10 years old, you know, Um, you know, and and, and the struggle is real. I mean, you know, people need to really understand that the way the system is set up, the system is set up. So those individuals can be sort of in that cycle doing the same thing. And so there isn't really like unless, like you said, that you find an outlet to get out of that cycle 
it just keeps going and going and going and going on. And, you know, one has to wonder why that is, right? Why, why are, you know, black men, uh, black fathers being taken away from their young kids and put into jail and, ex and, and then, you know, they're expected to sort of be okay, right? They're expected to grow and be this, you know, role models. Meanwhile, they don't have any fa father figures to grow up with. You know what I mean? Um, sure. You know, and, and it's, 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 it's really painful, um, you know, yeah. listening to stories like that. And, you know, it, it really hits hard um, knowing that it's really not because uh, it's something that someone might do that's very incriminating, right? It, it wasn't like, you know, somebody went and, you know, committed a murder or, you know, did something. It could be something as simple as you're just trying to live a life and trying to be better for your kids, right? And, you know, somebody might see you and say, hey, you know what? I, I don't really like that black guy. So I'm going to call the cops, like we're saying, and get them arrested because they're in the wrong neighborhood, right? Sure. Sure. That, that, that to me is pretty messed up, right? Again, I don't know how we can fix that. <laughs> Right. And I don't know how we can sort of, you know, have the real uncomfortable conversations about, you know, trying to use the system to better, um, you know, and just, you know, get these kids who are fathers, are, you know, spending their lives in jail, not for doing something crazy, but just for being black, you know. Um, so growing up like that, did that play into um, your leadership role at our football program, because again, you are part of the leadership group um, for our football program um, in, you know, so many years, did that play into being a leader and why, why did you decide that? Or why did you think it was important for you being a black man coming into the space to be a leader um, for the Iowa football program? Definitely. You know, um, a big part of it, one was seeing, a lot of what dr drives me and what drove me was just seeing my mom struggle as a single parent and seeing her go through that and, you know, me wanting to do better for myself and, and you know, my siblings and, and want to lead in that way. Um, and so growing up and, and seeing, you know, some of the guys I grew up with go through the things they went through. And again, like just get, being given that opportunity well, earning that opportunity, not not being given that opportunity, but earning the opportunity to go to school and do things like that, I found myself in a position where, you know, I, I navigated being a young man, black man from a single parent home. Then I went to Monona Grove where it's predominantly white and at Iowa is where like my two worlds collided, mm. where, you know, a lot of, you know, my black teammates come from similar situations in big cities where, you know, they they come from single parent homes or they come from, you know, violent neighborhoods and, you know, neighborhoods filled with drugs and, and people just trying to make a living for themselves. Yeah. And on the other end, I have, you know, there's some white kids on the team who who never seen a black person in real life before. Yeah. So being able to, you know, experience my life as a young kid and then my experience as high school helped me lead and helped me be able to guide some of my uh, black teammates and help them navigate it. Cause I had already gone through it in high school. Mm. So, you know, and, and knowing kind of some of those microaggressions and some of the ignorance that I faced in high school, 
I was help, able to help open the eyes of some of the white kids on my football team. So right. I, I think I would, my, my two worlds collided and I was able to kind of mesh and just lead in, in on both ends, you know, where, whether it was a black kid or whether it was a white kid, I think I was able to kind of lead and bring, you know, people together to, to see in a, in a, in a way. That's not, not that's for real powerful, man. Kudos to you. Um, that's that's for sure amazing. And I am sure, and again, I've heard great things about your leadership in the football program. People appreciate you, they appreciate you know the effort, um, you know, all your activism. And again, you've done a lot of things just to sort of educate people, right? If you know, like you say, your two were collided and you were in a perfect situation to sort of help or mentor the black kids coming from, you know, the same neighborhood or sort of the same background as you did. And at the same time, you were able to teach the, the white kids who some of them have never seen a black person before, um, you know, sort of understand the black culture, right? Um, because again, there is a thing about the black culture that when people don't understand, they either fear it or reject it, you know? Um, you know, again, you know, kudos to you for doing that. I want to talk a little bit about, you know, your activism and, you know, sort of, um, you know, what you've been doing. But before I do that, I want to ask this question. And again, I'm asking this question because I think, you know, um, it, it's, it's a powerful movement. But when it first started, there was a lot of uh, back uh, back and forth and people thought it was the terrible idea and you know it wasn't a good idea what does Colin Kaepernick kneeling what did that mean to you as a black football player definitely you know and when when it first started I don't think even you know all black people really understood what it meant and how powerful it was mm-hmm. you know it took everybody a while to kind of see and you know what I think drove the power behind that whole movement and taking a knee was seeing how, <laughs> seeing how people reacted. Right. Yep. And <laughs> how some, you know, the hate that was spewing out of people's mouths and seeing people's true colors. And, you know, that flag, they, they value, you know, people value that flag more than they value black bodies, which is mm. just crazy to me. Mm. And, and you know, the thing is, it wasn't even about the flag, <laughs> right? That's the thing. That's the confusion. It, it's not about the flag. It's about, you know, the symbol um, of mistreatment and, uh, you know, the injustices in the system, right? But you were saying, like, people took it so personal and said you were, you know, he was sort of... Um, um, I don't know. I, it, it's, it's not about the flag. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. That always has to be brought up. Yeah. Um, but, you know, him taking a knee during the national anthem was to show, you know, as a black man, why should I stand for police brutality? Mm-hmm. Why should I stand for the achievement gap that we see between black kids and, and white kids? Why should I stand for mass incarceration of black men and women. Um, you know, the injustices we see in the court systems, in the schools, in, in the workforce. Healthcare. Um, so that, that's what it's about. And, you know, people try to spew it and, and ch- or change it and spin it, excuse me, into being, oh, he's just respecting the flag in the military, this, that, the other. And, you know, pe- people fa- fail to realize that 
you know, black people are some of the most patriotic people in this country because, yep. you know, we, we built this country, you know, we, the most prestigious building in the country, the White House, we built that White House, you know, um, we were inventors, you know, we're art, music, sports, food, so much of the culture. And not to forget, you know, you want to make it about the military, you know, black people have been fighting for this country since the Civil War. You know, they were black people were in Vietnam and, and in all the, the world wars. You know, black people have been in the front lines of the army and and fought in higher numbers than some of the white people have in this country. So when people say, oh, he's not patriotic, they forget that black people are some of the most patriotic patriotic people in this country. So right. you know, it, it's just they they create this narrative and, and want to spin it into something that's not. But you know, it's really about, you know. Taking taking a knee to stand against all the injustices and, and things that we suffer as black men and women in this country. Mm, yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. I one hundred and ten percent right. Um, again, it's I think you know people fail to understand the reason behind um, you know sort of the the protests, right? Um, let me fast forward to twenty twenty. Um, George Floyd happens, right? As a black man, how did that hit you, right? Because I'm, I'm asking this question because, you know, for me, you know, I sit back and I was like, that could have been me, right? Because, you know, like you said, you know, you've been in spaces that, you know, cops have been called just because somebody thinks that you don't belong in that space, you know? Um, you know, so again, it, it's real. Like, you know, I, I walk down my neighborhood and sometimes I am afraid to walk down my neighborhood at night even though I own a house in that neighborhood, right? Because I'm afraid somebody's going to see me and be like, oh, you know, there's this black guy trying to do some bad stuff in my neighborhood, um, you know, but I live there, right? Um, what did the death of Joy Floyd, um, what did it do to you um, as a black man? It, it definitely, it hurt. It, it was scary. It was, it, it made me very angry. The, a mix of different emotions in you know, my in my own community, uh, we we dealt with, you know, a young man named Tony Robinson who was killed by the police. Yeah. So you know, that's something that is hit close to home. You know, right right in my own city where I grew up and was born and raised, and you know where I plan to raise my children. Yeah. So, you know, that was that was definitely tough and and scary. And people don't understand. You know, they they say. They want to make the excuses. Well, he should have complied or, you know, if you would have just done this or you would have just done that. And as a black man in that moment, yep. he, he was scared. You know what I'm saying? Yep. He wasn't the first black man to be killed at the, the hands of the police. Right. So, you know, in that moment, I can't even imagine what he was thinking. But I do know myself, you know, and I don't think all police officers are bad. That would be I'd be a fool right. to of say course that. Not. No, of course not. Right. You know, so, but with me being a black man and seeing what has happened time and time again in our history, when I, if I walk past a police officer and, you know, down the street, I'm instantly locked up a little bit. I'm nervous. I'm kind of, you know, or driving past, driving past police officers. I, I start to shake. Like, and you know, it's crazy that we bring this up because not even... Three weeks ago, I had 
a police officer, you know, it's snowing out. I had a police officer pull out right behind me, following me, literally got up this close to my license plate to, I guess, to scan my plate. You know, I turned, made a couple of turns to see if, you know, they were really following me and followed me for like two blocks. And then right when I went back onto the main street, they sped off and went the other way. And it's just like, if you fit the description, mm-hmm. you know, you're a subject to that, to be followed and harassed. I, you know, I could have easily been pulled over and, you know, they could have, you know, I could have reached for my license and they thought I had a gun and I, you know, I could be dead. So people don't understand that reality. Yep. Yep. No, absolutely. You're right. I mean, again, like I, when you're driving and an officer drives by you as a black man, instantly there is probably a thousand things going on in your head right um and it's crazy it's crazy because again like you said you know 95 percent of you know cops are great cops right you know but just like every profession you know there are some bad apples right and it's it's sad to say that you know you know what you know we see on TV or what is being portrayed and you know um, the innocent you know black man dying is what has consumed our society so much that as a black man when I'm driving and I see a police officer, instantly I start thinking about my death, right? And that again, like you said, sometimes it gets to the point that you shake because you're thinking, okay. If I if they ask me a question and I answer and they don't like that answer, then, you know, they can then, you know, exert force, you know, and get me to, you know, do other things. Right. And, you know, it's sad that, you know, that's the world we have to navigate as black men. And again, like we're saying, it's not we don't believe that all cops are bad cops. You know, again, all cops are great. I have some great cops friends. They're doing amazing things. You know, they're protecting us. But again, as a black man, you know, you have to have that behind your head when you see a cop or when you see somebody drive by. Instead, you're like, Lord Jesus, I commit my soul, <laughs> you know, and it, it's, it's shameful that, you know, um, that is what that's the world we live in, especially in the United States, you know, and, you know, you have somebody like Colin Kaepernick, who started the whole sort of awareness, but then that got twisted into something else. And then George Floyd happened. And then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, wait, we need to have tough conversations, we need to have real conversations. But part of me is like, are things really ever going to change? You know, um, <laughs> definitely, I, I definitely feel that way. And you know, just even looking at the Kaepernick protest and taking a knee and people spinning it—that's what makes it hard to change things. Because, yep. All of a sudden, now another little spinoff to this: you look at the Blue Lives Matter flag mm. and what, they, what that has turned into, right? And, like I said, I don't think all, you know, police officers are bad. We, I can't say it enough, but you know, while one group of that all came into play after, you know, pol- there was police killing, you know, black men and women and people were starting to protest because then it was people saying, Oh, well, we support the police. They have a hard job, whatever this, that, the other, but then that whole symbolism has changed and you have groups that were storming the Capitol who, you know, took on that flag and, and, and uh, 
you know, it, I, I call it a symbolism of, of racism, honestly, because, you know, when the police, 20 years ago, those blue flags didn't exist. You know what I'm saying? Yep. It was created to, yep. to ignore the protest of Black Lives Matter, you know, standing up for police brutality. And, you know, it just goes to show when we have events like the people storming the Capitol and they're assaulting police officers, flying the Blue Lives Matter flag. And it's like, well, is that, I thought the flag was- <laughs> You're assaulting, yeah, you're assaulting the people that you are protecting for. Exactly. So, I mean, that just goes to show, you know, that's not what, you know, yeah, people, there's some people who will have the stickers on their car and really, you know, really think like, yeah, I'm, I just support the police or I have a cousin or a brother or uncle who's a police officer. Cool. But I, people need to understand that what that set flag represents, whether they chose it or not, that flag is no different than the Confederate flag. Right. If you look at those protests or not, not the protests, excuse me, the riots at the Capitol, um, the Gadsden flag, the Trump flag, the Blue Lives Matter flag, and the Confederate flag were all the flags you saw there. And in all the pictures, you saw them flags there. And, and you know, that's, it symbolizes hate and racism and bigotry. So, you know, it's just crazy. That, that's what makes it hard to, to see change when you have people, you know, taking over these movements and trying to spin them and turn them into things they're not. Yep, yep. No, I absolutely agree, man. Huh, all right. Hey, listen, you're on the edge with Tori Young. This is Eddie. We're talking about the difficulties and the struggles of being black in America, especially being a black man. Um, and, and especially for you being a black football player. Um, uh, again, you know, being in leadership, being an act uh, being an activist, um, and just you know, trying to teach people. Um, with your background and educating people and creating awareness. Uh, I, I appreciate you much. Listen, what's next for you? So what, what, what do you got going on right now? Yeah, definitely. Right now, I'm just kind of trying to stay out the way with, with uh, COVID-19, really. Yeah. But just working and, and you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to just kind of trying to find what my calling is yeah. outside of, you know, a job. You know, I, I, I'm real passionate about the youth and serving uh, disadvantaged youth and communities. Yeah. Um, I, I wanna find a way to kind of make a presence in, in those communities to help, you know, help kids navigate and, and help black people, men and women navigate and, and create opportunities for more of us to, you know, have opportunities to go to school and to play sports and to get into music and be able to afford things like that. Absolutely, absolutely. Hey, listen, we should um we should talk about starting a nonprofit for you. Um, you should do just that. You know what I mean? I mean, again, there's a lot of people that you know will want to support. I'm sure somebody's listening right now, they'll be like, hey, listen, if you start that nonprofit organization, I'm gonna donate a hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> um, if you're listening to us right now and you want to donate a hundred thousand dollars to the Torrent Young Foundation which is not started yet, but it will be started sometime soon. Please hit us up. We want to get this uh, started and help, you know, youth, um, especially, you know, give, you know, be a father figure or just, you know, empower youth growing up in a system that, you know, doesn't really um, either encourages them or giving them opportunity to succeed. Um, you know, again, that's all this is all about, right? That's what, you know, 
life is all about. Um, so last question before I let you go, let's talk a little bit about your faith. You know, you know, faith, you know, it's a big deal to you. Um, how has faith really, you know, guided you or sort of helped you through navigate through all of the struggles in your life? Definitely. And, and you know, that's, that's a great question. And it's tough because, you know, one thing about faith is a lot of times in your journey, when it comes to faith, there'll be trying times and times where you're questioning things and, and you don't, you know, you're, you're straying away from your faith or you don't know, you know, which way to go, what to believe. Um, and, and one thing I've just noticed throughout kind of my journey and just my relationship that I try to keep with God um, is that just, you know, one, uh, really taking time to just reflect yep. and really, you know, take in what you're going through. Like I said, I've faced a lot of adversity and, you know, everybody faces adversity. Yeah. And one of my biggest things has been trying to sit back and reflect and see, you know, how the adversity that I've faced, how has God, you know, used that to kind of shape who I am today and lead me to my true purpose. You know, one of the big, toughest things and biggest things for me that was a struggle was transitioning from playing football to not playing football. I played from first grade all the way up till last year. And so this year, just not playing has been extremely tough and trying. And, you know, you, you question your faith at times, but, you know, I'm, I'm starting to see that I have, you know, more of a purpose and, and, than, than I do, you know, just with football. You know, football is great. It got me to where I am today. But, you know, I see that I'm here to serve others and serve members of the community and to be, you know, a father and a husband and, and, and do things like that. So, um, you know, it, it's tough at times. And, you know, you'll definitely get tested, but just remain true to who you are. Never lose your faith. Reflect. Take time to truly kind of break things down and understand that, just because it's not going in your favor or working the way you want it at that point in time doesn't mean, you know, it's all over. It doesn't mean it's the end. You know, you just keep pushing forward. That's the truth, man. That That is the truth. You know, you, you're a great example of, you know, um, you know, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, you know, and, you know, I've seen that you've exemplified that. Um, listen, you know, I'll be praying for you. Um, like you said, you know, having faith doesn't mean, you know, life is going to be easy because at times having faith makes it even harder, right? Because, yeah. you know, you start, again, like you say, you start questioning, um, you know, am I doing the right thing? You know, what does God want me to do? Does God really want me to do this? You know, um, and then at times you're just like, yeah, you know, um, uh, God, I'm just going to put you aside because <laughs> right now um, I don't know if what you want me to do is, you know, what I want to do. Right. Um, you know, and it's hard, you know, it, it's hard, you know, navigating all of that. And, you know, sometimes, you know, being truth to yourself, uh, truthful, um, you know, it's hard because again, you know, you have your conscious telling you, Hey, listen, don't do that, man. Don't do that. You don't do that. Um, but your flesh it's like, oh, no, I, I want I, I really want to smack him. <laughs> you know, I, I'm glad you brought that up. And I want to say one more thing real quick, because a lot of times people think of God as, you know, someone who has just this magic wand and they, yep. you know, I'll make that happen or this. Yeah. And people be like, well, if, you know, why would God ever make someone struggle through this? Or why would, you know, God make a young child pass away? And, you know, 
I, I believe, you know, that God gives us the tools yep. to make decisions and it's up to us to choose, you know, which path we're going to take. Right. And, you know, there is no magic wand. It, you know, you don't just uh, sit there and be like, oh, well, God made this person steal from me. So why would he do that? No, it's, you know, he gives us the tools we need to make certain decisions and it's up to us to navigate that. So that's a part of reflecting and, and being true to, to yourself and, you know, finding, you know, finding your inner spirituality and, and, you know, being in tune with your soul and your spirit and, and, and making the right decisions. No doubt, no doubt, no doubt. Hey, listen, I enjoy our conversation so much. Thanks for stopping by, Torin. Listen, I, I, I wish you were still playing football, but you said God has a plan for you. Um, and that plan is not to harm you, but to uh, make you prosper. Jeremiah 29, 11. Listen, thank you so much for coming through. Before I let you go, though, um, I'm going to give you one minute to send a message out to the world. What does Tarn Young want to tell the world in one minute? <laughs> well, it's all yours. <laughs> all right. First of all, thank you for having me. Um, you know, my biggest message right now, definitely during, you know, these trying times is just for everyone to sit back, reflect. And I think we need to listen, we need to learn, and we need to love um, three L's. It's extremely important, especially when, you know, we're coming out of, you know, this this pandemic and coming through a time where we're seeing this divide in the country. Um, You know, take the time to truly listen to one another, learn from one another and love one another. So that's all I got for y'all. Right. Listen, learn, and love. You heard that from Tony Young. Listen, thank you so much for coming through on the edge with Eddie. Um, it was a blast. I enjoyed our conversation. I am going to be reached out again. We'll continue this conversation. Thank you for all the good work you're doing in the community, uh, being a role model for a lot of kids who need role models. Um, thank you for being a beautiful black man. And thank you for just pushing through. Keep the faith. It shall be well. Let's hang in there. Thank you. It was a pleasure, Torin. So we meet again. Hey, right, thank this you. is real. <laughs>